John chapter 2, beginning in verse 12, and I'll be reading through verse 22. Follow along with me, would you please? After this, he went down to Capernaum with his mother and his brothers and his disciples, and they stayed there for a few days. The Passover of the Jews was at hand, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. In the temple he found those who were selling oxen and sheep and pigeons and the money changers sitting there. And making a whip of cords, he drove them all out of the temple with the sheep and oxen. And he poured out the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. And he told those who sold the pigeons, Take these things away. Do not make my father's house a house of trade. His disciples remembered that it was written, Zeal for your house will consume me. So the Jews said to him, What sign do you show us for doing these things? Jesus answered them, Destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. The Jews then said, It has taken forty-six years to build this temple, and will you raise it up in three days? But he was speaking about the temple of his body. When therefore he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this, and they believed the scripture and the word that Jesus had spoken. Now we've been keeping before us this, this one big idea, which is, is John's purpose in writing his gospel. It's this gospel that the Holy Spirit inspired him to write with this one this one purpose, this one big idea, it, it's to make very clear to us that Jesus is God. We're going to come back to this idea throughout our study together in the Gospel of John. This idea, this big idea that Jesus is God. And by inspiration of the Holy Spirit, that is just what John continues to do in our passage of study today. Now you, you might recall last week we began our study at the end of our passage Verses 1 through 11 we looked at last week, and, and we noted in verse 11 that, that this, the first of his signs, the turning the water to wine, this, the first of his signs, Jesus did at Cana in Galilee, and manifested his glory, and his disciples believed in him. Doesn't that sound a little bit like the end of the passage that I just read when we got to verse 22? Sounds a lot like that, doesn't it? Now, why did Jesus turn the water to wine? We talked about it last week. Why did he turn the water to wine? Well, there were a couple of reasons, but his ultimate purpose in turning the water to wine was to manifest his glory. We see, we see that in verse 11. His ultimate purpose was to manifest his glory. Now, remember that when Jesus manifests his glory, he's making himself known as God. He's revealing himself as God in human flesh. And the purpose for which Jesus manifested his glory was so that his disciples would be strengthened in their belief in him. And we noted last week, and we see it in verse 11, that they were. They were strengthened in their belief in and faith in him. They they say, it says there in verse 11, this is the first of his signs Jesus did at Canaan and Galilee and manifested his glory and his disciples believed in him. It means their belief, their faith in him was bolstered. It was strengthened because they saw the manifestation of the glory of God in the signs that Jesus performed. 
Now, like last week, we're beginning at the end again today. I want to go to the end of the passage that I just read in verses 12 through 22, and we begin at the end again this morning. Because we see here the purpose for which John shows us Jesus' actions. We see the purpose for this passage in these, in these verses 12 through 22 highlighted in verse 22. He's revealed as God, and I want you to note this morning, I'm going to touch on two ways that Jesus Christ is revealed as God in this passage. Two ways. First of all, one, the first thing we're going to see in this passage is that Jesus Christ is passionate about purity. He is passionate about purity. You know, I think we see that clearly in this passage. And then secondly, Jesus Christ holds the power over death. We see those two things which are very revealing about who Jesus is. Jesus is God in human flesh. Now, starting at the end of the story, verse 22, look at it again. When therefore he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this, the thing that he says we're going to look at here in a moment. He said this, and they believed the scripture and the word that Jesus had spoken. Our whole text today leads up to this point, verse 22. When Jesus' disciples recalled later, when they looked back on this time recounted in the passage before us, when they recounted what he did, when they remembered what they saw, they believed the scripture and the word that Jesus had spoken. So when they recalled that this, this, the, this thing that they're, they're seeing take place and the words that Jesus attached to this thing that he does in the temple that we see in the passage before us, they were strengthened in their belief in him when they saw something. What was it? They saw something later. It was going to be a few years later, but they would see him rise from the dead. They would see him in person and know that he rose from the dead, and they would think back, he pointed to this. He spoke about this. And they were strengthened in their faith in him and their belief in him. Our whole text points to this idea. Now, as we return to the beginning, let's go back to the beginning of the story before us here. And what we see is that Jesus and his mother, verse 12, and his brothers and his disciples, they go to Capernaum. They leave the wedding feast and they go to Capernaum for a few days. We don't know what they did there. There's not, there's hardly anything told to us about this other than they, they went. They may have had a family there. They may have had um, a brief stay there with, with, uh, with friends or business to, to do, but they went up to Capernaum. And there they stayed briefly. And when Jesus' disciples went with him and left, where did they go? Well, the, his brothers, his mother's disciples were with him at Capernaum, and they stayed there for a few days. And then verse 13 says that the Jewish Passover was coming as Jesus arrived at Jerusalem. Jesus goes to Jerusalem. The Jewish Passover is in the near future. There's a lot of preparation going on for the Jewish Passover. As Jesus arrived at the temple, what he found, we could say, and you would agree by looking at the passage, disturbed him. (laughs) Right? Jesus was greatly disturbed by what he saw. Deeply disturbed. Now, I'm going to call this... And maybe you've never thought about this, but I'm going to call this his first temple cleansing. And here's the reason why. There are three other Gospels, right? We've got John, we've got Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and we've got John. There are three other Gospels. They also mention a time when Jesus cleansed the temple, but they point to the time being at the end of Jesus' ministry. 
This is early in Jesus' ministry. I think that's an indicator that there were two times when Jesus cleansed the temple. Very likely, it's very possible because it's not likely that they would have changed their ways so quickly after this first time, this first arrival of Jesus. So I think that what we're seeing here is the first temple cleansing. There are other things that kind of point to this being true. Um, one thing is that the the, um, the idea of two temple cleansings is is seen in the fact that the one here in John doesn't see the kind of opposition that the others highlight. The other three Gospels show that there was great opposition to Jesus Christ after that temple cleansing. And there isn't much uh, opposition uh, to Christ after this temple cleansing. So I, I'm going to call this the first temple cleansing. Uh, there's a different outcome here than in the one in the other three Gospels. So I think we're seeing here in John 2, Jesus' first temple cleansing. That kind of a side note. Now, the outer courts around the temple were really intended to be a place of prayer. We're really intended to be a place where people could come and prepare themselves for this time of sacrifice, for worship, a time of quiet solitude and prayer, personal time of prayer. That's what the outer courts were intended for. That's why as Jesus came to the temple and he arrived at the temple courts, prior to the Passover, he was so disturbed. That's why he was angered as he he was. Verse 14 says what he found was this. In verse 14 he found those who were selling oxen and sheep and pigeons and the money changers sitting there. Could you imagine coming into the foyer this morning and um, walking through the front doors of the church and coming in to prepare yourself for a time of worship together this morning and um, and what we have set up are monstrous di- display tables with all kinds of goods that that we want you to buy so that we might make a profit. Could you imagine that? That's what was happening here. And and, I, and the reason I say that there were people set up trying to make a profit is because of what's taking place here. There were those who were selling oxen and sheep and pigeons and the money changers sitting there. Now, why would there be this selling of animals here in the temple court surrounding the temple? Well, the reason for this is that the law required sacrifice of of oxen, sacrifice of sheep, sacrifice of pigeons. So it's, it's somewhat understandable in the fact that it's very likely that this custom had been established of selling these sacrificial animals to accommodate those who were traveling from long distances, couldn't bring their own animals, their own sacrifice. They could purchase an animal here to be a sacrifice. This would provide those necessary sacrificial animals for those who traveled from a distance and couldn't bring their own. And then add to that, there was a need for money changers. Now, why in the world would there need to be money changers? Well, there were only, there were only certain kinds of coins that the priests would accept. Um, and they had to be of the purest of silver, um, convenient enough. And so when people would come from all over, they would have to exchange their money for the money that the, that the only money the priest would accept. And so here are these animals being sold, and, uh, and there's this money being exchanged and changed. And so what probably started out as a convenience for those who came to worship had actually turned into quite the money-making scheme. And, and I would say that this is a money-making scheme under the guise of kindness. You know how that would start? You would say, well, we could do people a favor and actually bring the animals a little bit closer to where they're going to be sacrificed. And, well, why not right here? 
in the courts. And um, you know what? They're going to need to have their money changed. So uh, we better exchange your money. And, you know, to make it worth our while, we better charge them a little bit extra. So we make a profit on this, too. And, and one thing, you know how that goes, right? One thing leads to another. What started out as a convenience for those who were coming to worship had turned into quite the money-making scheme under the guise of what was an act of kindness. That's why we see Jesus in verse 15 making a whip of cords, driving out the sellers along with their sheep and oxen. And oxen are no small thing to be contended with, right? Pouring out the money, overturning the tables of the money changers. I'm telling you that Jesus was was upset and he was angered because of what was going on in the temple courts was not a kindness done to those who were traveling from long distance, but it was people taking advantage of people who were coming to worship, people taking great advantage at their own personal gain for those who were coming to meet with God, so to speak, and pray and sacrifice, and yet here are these individuals and so Jesus is rightly angered and makes this whip of cord and drives out the animals and drives out the sellers. Now let me just add here that there's nothing about this that suggests any violence on Jesus' part. The whip was a whip of cords or a whip of rope. Fairly harmless. Yes, it would hurt. If you got hit with it, it would hurt, but fairly harmless nonetheless. But very handy for driving out the animals and getting those sellers moving, right? So I doubt there's a lot of violence going on here. Add to the fact that the temple had temple guards in place. Had there been any violence done to to people, it's very likely the temple guards would have swooped in and tried to intervene in this situation. We don't see anything like that here. John doesn't say that Jesus hurt anyone physically. Now, while I don't think there's any violence here on Jesus' part, let me just say this. At the same time, Jesus is no passive wimp. Do you you get that from this passage? you see that here? I mean, he did drive out the oxen, right? (laughs) He did make people get up and move and, and flee, right? And leave the temple courts. So he's no passive wimp. And I say that because some people would make Jesus out to be a docile and passive effeminate. And I believe they're wrong. I believe Jesus was a man. Okay? And he was a man's man. He he wasn't afraid to say, hey look, there's a wrong that's been done here. And I'm going to set it right. Now, at the same time, we know that Jesus was very compassionate. The Bible makes it very clear, the Gospels make it very clear that when, when compassion was, was appropriate, Jesus was compassionate. Even, even his, his emotions drove him to shed tears, correct? And so yes, Jesus is compassionate. He's compassionate when compassion is needed, but it, when the time comes to set a, a, a wrong right, his passion drives him as a strong individual to set it right, and he is no, he's no wimp. So I would just uh, be encouraged, gentlemen, that in this world, you know, a lot of times in this society, you're told to tone it down. Don't be a man. Don't be so strong. <laughs> well, Jesus, I think, would disagree. You need to be strong individuals for your families. You need to provide for your families. You need to protect your families. You need to love your families and be compassionate toward them. But you also need to be men. I think I see it in Jesus here, and I would be encouraged by this. I'm encouraged by this. Don't let make Don't let people make Jesus out to be a, A sissy. He's no sissy, right? 
He went to the cross, correct? He was crucified, cruelly. Jesus Christ was no sissy, all right? So, what's the wrong that's been done here? Because Jesus gets passionate about some wrong that's been done and setting it right. What's the wrong that's been done here? Well, it's seen in verse 16 in what Jesus tells those who sold the pigeons. And he's really talking about everything here. But he tells those who had the pigeons in their cages, take these things away. Do not make my father's house a house of trade. Take these things out of here. Get them away from here. Don't make my father's house a house of trade. Now, in the passage before us, here's the first pointer that Jesus is God. It's his passion for purity. Purity of heart is what I'm talking about. It points to Jesus being God. Jesus is passionate for purity of heart. I want you to note that Jesus didn't condemn those who were buying. Have you ever thought about that? Jesus did not condemn and drive from the temple courtyards those who were doing the buying. He was driving out those who were doing the selling. He was driving them out of the temple because He knew their hearts. He knew they were there for the wrong reason. He knew their hearts were wrong. He knew their motives were wrong. He was driving out those who were there for the wrong reasons, the ones who were there for selfish gain. Now, did you notice the contrast that Jesus pointed to? He said they were making his father's house a house of trade. Very stark contrast. And note that. He says, My father's house. There's another pointer to Jesus' deity, right? My father's house. You've made my father's house. Do not make my father's house. And here's the contrast. A house of trade. His father's house was to be what? A place of prayer. His father's house was to be what? A place of worship. It was to be a place of sacrifice. What was happening here was that they were making a mockery of it by making it a marketplace in this thin veil of worship. Oh, we're, we're, we're helping people worship. But what they had done is turned the Father's house into a place of selling and making money, right? Selling goods and making money, making a profit. Their, their marketplace in the midst of the temple courts betrayed the true condition of their hearts. That's why Jesus was upset. That's why he was angered at what they were doing because he looked through the people and into their hearts and knew their attitudes, knew why they were there. Later in verse 25, we'll see in in our next study, John tells us that Jesus knows what's in the heart of man. Jesus knows what's in the heart of man. He knows what's going on in their hearts. He knows why they're there. And those who were there selling and changing money for great profit were not there because they wanted to honor and glorify God. You get that? They were not there to to glorify God's name. They were there for selfish gain. And that's what angered Jesus. It was greed veiled in religious piety. Oh, we're being religious. We're helping people worship. But it was just greed behind that veil of worship. Now, Jesus gets right to the heart of the problem. It's their love of money instead of a love for God. It's their love of selfish gain in improving their position in life over honoring God with their lives. Listen, Jesus' disciples, John says in verse 17, remembered that it was written by his actions here, zeal for your house will consume me. Jesus was zealous for purity of heart. 
is what this, the idea here is that Jesus was very zealous for those who would be pure in heart, pure in their worship. And there would be other times Jesus dealt with this same problem. And it was seen in the scribes and Pharisees. Listen to Luke chapter 16 and verses 13 through 15 where Jesus says this, No servant can serve two masters. For either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. The Pharisees who were lovers of money. Do you get that? (laughs) The Pharisees who were lovers of money heard all these things, and they shot the messenger. They ridiculed him. And he said to them, You are those who justify yourselves before men, but God knows your hearts. For what is exalted among men is an abomination in the sight of God. And here's the takeaway for me. I had better be careful. And I'll put this to you as well. You had better be careful. I had better be careful about putting on airs in front of others so that others might think that we are holy people. God knows our hearts. Be very careful about how you present yourself to others so that they might think good of you because God's looking at your heart. He's not looking at the exterior. So Jesus was zealous for God-honoring purity. God wants God-honoring purity. Jesus wanted to see it in people who who came to worship at at His Father's house. Jesus is zealous for God-honoring purity and holiness in His Father's house, which which is an indicator of his passion for the purity of his people. Don't ever forget that this is a pointer to how passionate he is about how serious he is about our rightness with God, about the attitude of our hearts between ourselves and God's word and God. Jesus Christ is zealous, is very zealous for holiness and purity of heart. It is an indicator of his deity. It's the same thing we see in 1 Samuel 15 and verse 22. When You remember when God rejected Saul's, Saul's sacrifice? You know what was right before Saul's sacrifice? It was a half obedience. You know, what, you know what Saul was told? Here's what Saul was told by Samuel after his half obedience, and then he offered up a, a sacrifice to God. Samuel tells Saul, Has the Lord as great delight in the burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord. Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice. To obey is better than sacrifice and to listen than the fat of rams. We see it in the Old Testament. We see it in the New. God is far more concerned with your obedience than your show of sacrifice. To obey is better than sacrifice. Saul was told, God knows your heart, Saul. He knows you only obeyed him halfway. Now, we'll bring this a little closer to home this morning. We may not buy and sell in the church for personal profit, But the lesson for anyone who calls himself a Christian is that you dare not be one who honors God with your lips, but has a heart that's far from him. Matthew 15, 8 and 9 tells us that, right? We dare not be those people who have lips that wag about how much we 
honor and revere and love and worship God and yet has a heart that's totally somewhere else. God is much more interested in where your heart is than where you say your heart is. And to say you love God, but instead have a heart that longs for personal profit and selfish gain over and above God's glory is a profane to the name of God. It profanes God's name to say, I love God. I love worshiping God. I love his word. And yet your heart is somewhere else. Is profaning to the name of God. Jesus Christ came to make the glory of God known to show clearly the glory of God so that people would turn and be saved and give God the glory that He is due. Jesus Christ came to free us from anything that would entangle us and keep us from giving God the glory due His name. And yet, often, we find ourselves with hearts that are still bound up, still imprisoned in the pursuit of the earthly, the ungodly, personal gain. So the heart of the matter for you is, what is it you really worship? The heart of the matter for me is, what is it I really worship? And that's essentially the challenge Jesus was making as he chased these people from the temple courts. What is it you're really worshiping? It's not God. You get out of here. You're worshiping the things of this earth. You want money. You want profit. You're you're entangled in earthly things. You're really not here to worship God. You realize that we could come here like that today? And we could make a show this week by going to God's house to be with God's people, to open God's Word, to hear God's Word preached, and leave just like we came in with a heart that's far from God? I pray that's not so. I pray that's not so. So the fact that Jesus is God is seen in His passion for purity of heart. God is passionate about you being pure in heart. And Jesus Christ came to give Himself as a sacrifice for sinners so that we sinners might be forgiven our sin and saved from that sin and be made pure in heart because we're identified with Christ because He is pure. And when we believe in His name, we are forgiven our sins and we're made pure in Christ. You see, sin is impurity and sin kills. Sin is darkness. It's blackness. It kills. But Jesus gives a new heart and Jesus saves and Jesus gives new life. So be challenged as I am. Be challenged that God is more concerned with where my heart is. Am I truly loving and serving the Lord Jesus Christ who gave Himself to conquer the sin that would enslave me? There's another pointer in the reference to the temple, to the deity of Christ. Beginning in verse 18, the Jews, the Jews push back. How? Well, by saying they want a sign. Well, that's convenient. You know, something to verify Jesus' authority to come in and tell them that they were doing wrong. Something to verify who gave you authority to come in and question our morality. You see, they were less concerned with the fact that they were morally wrong than they were concerned about who Jesus was and finding out who gave you authority to challenge us. Verse 18, So the Jews said to him, What sign do you show us for doing these things? Show us why you have authority is the idea. 
That's a convenient question, isn't it? They're stalling, aren't they? You know that still happens today. And, and you meet people like that, and I meet people like that, who, who when they hear the gospel, they, they say, well, but can you really believe the Bible? Is Jesus really God? I mean, questions, right? Like the woman at the well. Well, I'm told that, you know, there's going to be a day when worship is, right? And she changes the subject. The woman at the well did. We see it in our day as well. And these men are no different. The, the Jews say, um, maybe you should show us a sign. Forget about our immorality. Where's your authority? They're stalling. And Jesus got right to the heart of the problem. Their sinful hearts. And they want to dodge and make it an issue of his authority. Very interesting, isn't it? That's the world that we live in today too, isn't it? Unbelievers still dodging God's authority over their lives. You know, when you really believe, you're going to stop dodging God's authority and you're going to say, I must humble myself before my Lord and Savior Jesus Christ and confess that I'm a wretched sinner in need of saving. Save me. I confess my sin and I want to submit to your word. That's the attitude of true repentance. These, these people were far from that. In verse 19, Jesus responds to their stall tactic by saying something very interesting, something they wouldn't get and something we wouldn't get if we didn't have the Bible, right? And if we didn't have John knowing the rest of the story, John didn't get it when, when he was there, nor the other disciples when they were there, and the Jews didn't get it. Jesus still he chooses to veil himself just a bit, but he's revealing himself at the same time. But they don't quite get it yet. He says, verse 19, destroy the temple, and in three days I will raise it up. And what were they thinking? They're standing in the temple courts. Huh. What? The, destroy the temple in three days? Yeah, yeah, right. Three days you're going to raise it up? They're totally clueless. But so were the disciples. And Jesus' response Though we see in the revealed word more of a revelation of Jesus Christ and his deity. We see more of his glory, more of his deity. John tells us in verse 21 that when he spoke of this temple, he was speaking about the temple of his body. John got it later, and so when he wrote his gospel, he explains. And by the way, this is what Jesus meant. But at the time, nobody got it. In verse 20, it's very clear the Jews didn't see Jesus for who he is or understand what he was talking about. The Jews then said, it has taken 46 years to build this temple, and will you raise it up in three days? And here's the point. It's another revelation from Jesus about his own deity. And here's the point. Jesus holds the power over death. That's what he's pointing to. They don't get it. That's for our benefit, really. We get it. It is for the benefit of his disciples later when they would see that he had risen from the dead. Then they would get it. They would look back. He said this. We believe. We're strengthened in our faith because now we know. But Jesus, you know, in effect, he's saying, yeah, you want to see a sign? You want to see a sign, says Jesus? Here's your sign. The same sin cloaked in religiosity that causes you to come into my father's house in the temple courts and take advantage of people for the sake of personal profit, all the while claiming to do them a favor, to do them good, is the same sin cloaked in religiosity that's going to kill this temple, my body, and I will raise it again in three days. The same attitude that you show me here today is, the, is going to be the one that kills this body, and I will raise it in three days. 
Jesus is pointing to the fact that he holds the power over death. Jesus reveals himself as God. He holds the power over death. Jesus says, in fact, in John 10:15, I lay down my life for the sheep. Amen? And praise God, right? I lay down my life for the sheep. And then in verses 17 and 18, he says, For this reason the Father loves me, because I lay down my life that I may take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up again. This charge I have received from my Father. Who is Jesus? He's the one with the power over death. He's God. And because He is who He says He is, you can believe in Him and you can be saved from eternal death and separation from God in hell. Amen? Because He is who He says He is, you can believe and be saved and be forgiven your sin and have eternal life. He's the one with the power over death. In verse 22, John tells us that when therefore he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this, and they believed the scripture and the word that Jesus had spoken. Now, I said it earlier. At the time, John didn't understand what Jesus meant when he talked about destroying this temple. Obviously, he's talking about his body. We understand it now. We say obviously, but at the time, they didn't get it. The other disciples didn't get it. The Jews didn't get it. But later, the disciples got it. Later, the disciples understood. It was when? It was after Jesus was raised from the dead. And let me just make this point, that even then, even then, they only understood and believed because they believed. They, they only understood what Jesus had done and what he had pointed to here because they believed. It says here in verse 22, they believed the scripture and the word that Jesus had spoken. And even their belief was a gift from God. Even their faith was a gift from God. This was not their own doing. They would not even have understood after his resurrection had it not been for the faith that God had given them in helping them see the truth. Because there were many people after his resurrection who still did not believe. And so I must ask you, do you believe? Do you believe the Scriptures? Do you believe the word Jesus has spoken? Do you believe the truth that Jesus has made very clear? That he is passionate about purity in the, in the hearts of his people. And he holds the power over death. When you believe that Jesus wants you holy, he wants you living a life that is Christ honoring, it will compel you to obedience. Even more so when you understand he holds the power over death and life. Do you believe in the scriptures? Do you believe the word Jesus has spoken? There's a wonderful promise several chapters later, for all who believe. And this is quite the contrast to what we see of him driving these people and these animals and these money changers out of the temple courts, a stark contrast, and here's a wonderful promise for us to depart with today. 
ringing in our hearts and our ears. John 6.37 All, all the Father gives me will come to me. And whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we are so thankful that we can echo with the Apostle John in John 6 that all the Father gives you will go to you and whoever goes to you will never be cast out. And God, we take great hope and encouragement and strength in knowing that when you make make us your children, we are your children permanently. And you save us from our sin and you make us your own. And then, through the power of your word and the power of your indwelling presence through your spirit, you compel us to do good works and honor and to glorify you, not to gain our salvation, not to earn for or to pay for our salvation, but because you are so gracious, we're compelled to be obedient and faithful and joy-filled. Even in, in the face of opposition, even in opposition like Jesus faces as we see him and his ministry in the Gospels. God, I pray that you would help us to be a people who are forever grateful for your grace through the Lord Jesus Christ in our lives and that we would truly see him for who he is and believe. That we would understand that your passion for the purity of your people challenges and encourages and, and implores us to be obedient to your word. To not just pay you lip service, but give you our hearts and our lives to follow. God, help us to honor and glorify you as your people. God, I pray that that those who may have come to realization this morning, they've never trusted you and, and realize that Jesus Christ is the once for all sacrifice for their sins, that God, that they will humble themselves before you even as we pray at this moment and confess their sin to you in prayer and believe in Jesus Christ for eternal life. God, draw them to Yourself and help them to realize their need for humility before You and confession of sin and repentance and belief in Jesus Christ as the only answer for their eternal soul's destiny. God, help us to honor and glorify you, Your Son, Jesus Christ, as the One who holds the power over death and life. Encourage us with these truths, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.